We are starting, though, following up on something we talked about last week, and we didn't have nearly enough time on the open lines, so we're going to open up the phone lines a bit later on in the show, talking about the freeze when it comes to the sale, the import, the transfer, the bequeathing of handguns in this province. Remember this big announcement from last week? Going forward today, um, it will be illegal to buy, sell, transfer, uh, or bequeath handguns. This is a significant stride forward towards smart, sensible uh, gun policy to keep our communities safe. That's it was Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino speaking last week. And you heard right off the top there, going forward today. Except some digging by Blacklock's reporter has shown that is not exactly the case. And Tom Korski is joining us now. He is the managing editor at Blacklock's Reporter. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Let's talk a little bit about this because it was a big, splashy announcement. We heard from the Prime Minister as well, the Public Safety Minister of Canada, talking about the handgun freeze. And they talked about it as saying it was effective immediately. It's now in place. But you and Blacklock's reporters have discovered that's not actually the case. It's not the case, and it's a very basic rule. This is not inside uh, process uh you know, baseball technicalities, Jill. Fundamental rule. Uh, Canadians are not governed by secret regulations. We're governed by public regulations, and that regulations must be published in a specific place. It's called legal notice. The place is called the Canada Gazette. It's published every Wednesday and Saturday and has been since 1841, even before Confederation. If you want to know what rules that uh, you, you are governed by, you look it up in the Gazette. If it's not in the Gazette, it's not a rule, because we don't live in the Soviet Union. We are not governed by secret regulations. When the Prime Minister said on Friday, this is the law now, we, say, we are doing it by cabinet order, I say so, here's the news release, it doesn't work that way. We are not governed by news releases. It is not your job as a citizen to go hunting and pecking through the Internet to guess as to whether you can buy a handgun or not. By the way, that won't be gazetted until November 9th. The Department of Public Safety says so. November 9th at the earliest. And so what do you think was happening here? Was it kind of a channel changer or the federal government was hoping that they could announce this and say it's effective immediately and, and people like yourselves, uh, reporters at Blacklocks or any reporter for that matter or any Canadian for that matter, just wouldn't check? I, we, this is the third time we've caught them doing this. It's, it, it's a new habit in Ottawa. And I think it's intended to confuse and frighten people. I really do. It serves no other purpose. This is, this is right out of the NHL rulebook. Can't pass the puck to a player ahead of the blue line offside. You can't make it up. You can't change the rules. But they do this because they wanted to frighten people into believing that a law was in place without bothering to pass a bill or to correctly publish a regulation. Jill, we can't have that. We can't live in a country where we are governed by press releases and midnight cabinet orders. It just doesn't work that way. But that's what they try to do. I think they're going for the effect. They wanted that story in every newspaper in the country. And they got it. And the story is wrong. 
And when you talk about this, well, I know there was some response or there were questions about, oh, well, is it possible in this case that they got an exemption, that you can you can get an exemption for whether it's the, the public debate or the, the, um, the, the leading up to the passing. But like you said, this was a cabinet order. This wasn't kind of going through the normal channels. But it doesn't appear, or, or you've been able to find as well, it's not as though there was an exemption granted here. There was not, and I'm happy to explain because they are uh, uh, parsing words. Where have you heard that before? <laughs> That's what governments do when they get caught. When they say there's an exemption, what they mean is usually open, transparent governments publish regulations before they take effect. That's called Gazette One. Who reads the Gazette, by the way? Well, we do, and there's a few lawyers. In Gazette One, you say, we're going to have such a regulation on such a day. Why don't you tell us what you think? And you have a period of public consultation. It can be 30 days. It can be two years. Cabinets often waive that consultation because they want to get a, a regulation in right away. When you want a regulation to become law so that every police officer on the corner can enforce it, that's called Gazette Two. It's called final publication the term is registration. That's offside. They didn't do it in this case. Now we see the spokesperson for the Minister of Public Safety unbelievably says, oh, that business, that business about publishing the rules for everyone to see, that's a formality. We don't do that anymore. Hmm. Jill, I got to tell you, whether you own a handgun or not, and most Canadians don't, this is unacceptable, it's misinformation, and frankly, it's shabby treatment by a cabinet that's completely unnecessary. Be straight with the people, tell them what you're doing and when, don't fake it and try to frighten them, and I think that's what they did. Right, because we're even, we're not talking about a huge amount of time here. Like you said, according to the Gazette, this will become law. This is a cabinet order that's coming in, but the date is November 9th. At least be honest about when the date is. They've done it twice before. One time was uh, they were in a, a bad place in a, a trademark dispute in federal court. We documented this through access to information. They backdated <laughs> news release. Mendocino, God bless him, the public safety minister. He actually backdated a news release. He issued a fake news release claiming an act was in force because it would help their case in federal court. He did that to mislead a federal judge. And they did it two years ago when it, actually a bill was passed into law by parliament it was a tax exemption on farmland sales. It was going to cost the Treasury $179 million. Department of Finance said, no, no, that bill's not in effect until we say so. The chair of the Finance Committee got so hot, he was a liberal, by the way. He brought the committee back into session in July just to get the finance boys down to give them a hard time. This is becoming a trend in Ottawa. It's dangerous. It's bad habits. And it's misleading. It causes confusion and delay. They're doing it deliberately. Thank you for trying to clarify this, Jill. Well, no, thank you for doing this as well, because I think when people saw you and another staff members, reporters at Black Locks, uh, posting about this on social media, there were a lot of questions going, well, wait a minute. They, they used the word immediately and as of now and today and with great fanfare talked about this freeze that's in place. I mean, we can get into whether or not the freeze is going to do anything when it comes to crime rates and crime and illegal guns in this country, a whole other conversation. But for a government to say one thing that completely is not true uh, deserves at least a second look. 
Well, it's deliberate, and, and, and we can ask, I guess it's a rhetorical question. I don't know the answer. It's beyond my professional training. I'm not a sociologist. Why would a government want to sow confusion, fear, and upset with false announcements? Maybe you're right, Joe. Maybe it was because of testimony in the public, uh, uh, Commons Public Safety Committee, where police chiefs said, your bill, by the way, is not going to do anything to reduce gun crimes. I don't know. Maybe it was all political. I guess we'll find out someday. But it's a hell of a way to run a railway. Well, I mean, it shouldn't, I suppose, come as a huge surprise either. And I talked about this on the day of the announcement. I mean, last time they were talking about bringing in tougher gun laws, uh, the public safety minister, uh, as they like to trot out crime victims as props, uh, he got the name wrong in a case where a teenager was hit by a stray bullet. And then in this last announcement, the prime minister was talking about a very high profile case in Surrey, the Surrey Six Murders, and talked about one of the innocent bystanders being hit with a stray bullet. Well, that wasn't what happened at all. So they're not even getting the facts right when they're talking about high-profile crimes committed with illegal guns, I might add. So I suppose uh, we shouldn't be all that surprised that they're not getting the facts right when they're talking about the dates. It's, it's a long trail of winding on uh, gun regulation. There's no doubt about it. Handguns have been regulated in Canada since 1935. Most Canadians who don't own a handgun are rightfully, uh, you know, ambivalent about handgun regulation. But I'll tell you where they start to care. And that's when you get the bill. And that's the problem. And, and police chiefs have told them this in, in testimony in committee. These are police chiefs. They're not running for office. And they've told them your handgun freeze is not going to stop the flow of black market guns into the country. Do you know they don't even know how many guns are smuggled into Canada. The Customs and Immigration Union has testified in committee. Do you know what it is to ship a rail car full of uh, black market guns into Canada? Your chance of escaping detection is about 100%. We have a porous border. They're not on it. And yet we see there's political motivation, to, I guess, to show people in the cities, in particular in Toronto and Montreal, as you mentioned, Surrey, look at what we're doing to make your neighborhood safe. And when the chief of police, Chief McPhee from Edmonton, was the last to testify in committee, and Jill, he told them, all you're doing is you're fueling the black market. It's a ridiculous measure. And he said he does not even think it will reduce gun crime. Then what's the point? Now we're into monkey business with fake news releases again. It's, uh, this is so complicated for cabinet. And you wonder why. Why does it ha- public safety have to be so political and so complicated all the time? Well, I'm uh, so glad that you were able to join us, Tom, and talk more about this uh, and clarify that uh, as this reads, this law, uh, whether you uh, support it or don't, is actually not going to be in place until November 9th. I'm sure we will talk more about this, but Tom, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you again so much. Thank you, Jill. Well, Canada's competition watchdog is launching a study, and this is taking a look at the grocery industry, hoping to pinpoint the reason behind those rapidly rising food costs. They have increased at the fastest pace since 1981. The Competition Bureau also says it will be exploring how the government could possibly act to combat those price increases. Well, joining us now is Jake Edmonston, reporter at the Financial Post and covering the business of food. Jake, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What do you think this will look like as far as the Competition Bureau looking at this, looking at food prices? 
so what what they're signaling is that they're they're what they really want to focus on on is is concentration in the grocery market. So we have five companies in Canada that control about eighty percent of grocery sales, and and what the competition bureau suggested today is that if there was more competition in in the Canadian market, that could have helped drive down prices during a crisis like the one we're seeing right now. Right. So they've suggested that. But do you think so? Will this study, will it look to back that up or they're going to see exactly why we're seeing the prices go up so high, that kind of thing? Yes. So they're expecting it to have a, a lot of feedback from industry players. I've also already spoke to the main lobby group that represents our big grocers, and they're saying that the, the, the grocers are eager to participate. The way they're seeing this is, is it, let's be frank, the grocers have taken uh, a, a lot of re- reputational hits going back, you know, for the last two years, going back to the Hero Pay scandal when, when the top three grocers removed um, Hero Pay bonuses in the first months of the pandemic all on the same day. So they're, they're hoping that, you know, they've been getting dinged for, for a lot of people suggesting that, that inflation is their fault, and they're hoping that they can have, you know, if, if this competition bureau is able to get deep into this, um, that they're going to have some vindication. That's what I'm hearing from them. Right, because you're, you're right. They certainly have taken a lot of, well, been the focus of a lot of complaints or people saying and being quite accusatory, saying that they thought the big grocery chains that were being greedy and simply bumping up the prices for their own profits. Exactly. We've, we've heard that. We've heard that from, from some progressive think tanks. We've heard that from some economists who have said, you know, there, there's been profit and margin growth at, at, the, at a time when, when Canadians are facing the worst grocery bills in, in uh, 40 years. But um, where, you know, what we have to deal with right now before the, before the um, Competition Bureau study is, is just fine public financial documents. And I've talked to some auditing and, and uh, accounting experts who have said there is a limit to what you can see in, you know, there's not, they, there's no smoking gun. There's no, there's no proof that, of, of profiteering or price gouging in, in the um, public financial statements, except for the fact that there is some gross margin growth, which shows, you know, which, which, you know, the grocers say is coming from other things that is, that are totally legitimate causes. Like for example, more people are, are, um, buying cosmetics now that the pandemic is is starting to fade and those and people are going back to work and and those are higher margin products so they're so getting into the weeds of it as far as the competition bureau is able to um, will provide us with some more answers hopefully now the one other thing that's interesting with this is the competition bureau is able to launch criminal investigations but what they're doing here is called a market study and it's there they, there isn't the same amount of, there isn't the same kind of power they can't compel compel a company to hand over documents they just have to I uh, hope they'll volunteer that information. So that's that's sort of what we're looking at. Right. So, but are we then in a scenario, like you say, when the big grocers say that they are eager to participate, but is that also because they can participate as much or as little as they want? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. They, they're, you know, their uh, main mouthpiece right now is saying they're, they're, they're coming out, they want to participate because they, they have the facts on their side. So that's what they're saying. We'll see how, how much they participate um, when the report comes out in a, in a few months. And so would it be looking at things like, uh, say, something that uh, a lot of people are noticing uh, increased price? I'll just use, for example, so say beef, the price of beef has gone up. Are they looking to see if there was collusion or if these grocers decided, okay, well, this is the price, but we're all going to jack it up to this price? It's it's, it's, like they haven't really tracked where they're going in that kind of detail, but what they seem to be looking at is more market concentration, more 
what are the what what are the ways that the, the government could what are the sort of policy levers that the government could pull to make to increase competition in uh, the in the grocery market, which is a, a bit interesting considering it's coming from the, the competition bureau that has been the one that has allowed this sort of market competition concentration to happen, allow these mergers between grocers to happen. Um, you know, if it's about Loblaw and South Africa, these are things that the Competition Bureau studied um, and, and allowed to go through. So now that they're saying, well, if there has been more competition, maybe we could have had less rampant food inflation in the past year. Right. So it's anyway, interesting. Um, you you also brought up or you mentioned that this is also it's the competition bureau that also uh, launched or was studying and investigating the the bread price fixing, which people will remember that. But that was a few years ago, and and you you brought that up again today, pointing that out. That did we really get any uh, any any conclusion to that? No, and I think that surprises a lot of people, myself included, because. I think a lot of us got the $25 gift card from Loblaw and thought it was kind of an open shut case, but that is, is, is far from the case. Those allegations of a 14-year of a bread price fixing ring uh, that involved the top retailers and bakeries in this country, um, Loblaw came out and, and, and talked about it in 2017. The Bureau launched an investigation, and they confirmed to me today that that investigation is still ongoing five years later. No charges have been laid. No conclusions of wrongdoing doing have been made. So that's where we're at on that. Hmm, interesting. And I'm guessing that this study then, somebody called earlier in saying that not only were they kind of upset about the increase in prices, but also I'm sure something you've talked about, the, the kind of the shrinkflation or the different uh, sizes of packaging and the fact that the prices are the same or higher and you're not getting as much. But that's not the grocers so much as that would be the companies doing that, right? Right. And, and this is this big push and pull between, you know, both where, in terms of where the, the blame for inflation lies. Grocers will say that they're, they have been inundated with suppliers who are trying to change prices, and trying to trying to get the grocers to pay more for products to cut to, you know, recoup their added costs of fuel and ingredients because because commodities are going up and labor and, and what have you. So there is this big push and pull. We see it. We've seen for the first time that sort of spill out into the public eye with with the with when when uh, PepsiCo pulled its entire line of of Frito Lay products from Loblaw shelves because Loblaw refused to pay more for the products. That was like those negotiations I've told have been happening a lot and they've been reaching that boiling point a lot, but rarely do we see it. But in this crisis, we've seen um, uh, how 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 tough these negotiations can get behind closed doors. And do you think perhaps we're seeing more people pay attention now or really notice that, that it, this is something that needs to be looked at and investigated because so many people, I mean, anybody going to a grocery store, were seeing these prices and, and probably a little bit shocked by them? Oh, exactly. I think, I think um, it, it, as, as somebody who writes about food, this has been, I, 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 the amount of interest I get in my work Right now, it, it, the more, most it's, it's it's been in my experience. It's it's uh, which is interesting, and I think it's a good way. To, like I think a, 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 a lot of consumers are a lot more uh, literate in terms of how how food gets to our plates um, than than we might have been before. I, I certainly know I am. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody uh, at some point have has looked at the prices and thought, oh yeah, that's a lot more than it was not too too long ago. Um, and when we talk about this study, this looking at this and that the big grocers is it focused mainly on the big grocers and like you said the the kind of the 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 lack of competition there, or will it also look at independent grocers or kind of always that we get to, that we buy groceries. 
It sounds like the scope is 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 on the grocery industry in general. Um, I had you know in, in hearing from the in the, the grocery side this this afternoon, they're you know they're a little bit sore about the fact that the, the scrutiny is solely on them rather than rather than the suppliers. There you know there's a lot of talk about PepsiCo, which is a public company, had a, an, an earnings update last week or earlier this month uh, where they had uh, had some some double-digit sales and profit growth. So they're sort of saying, well, what, why, you know, why, why is, why is everyone so focused on, on, and it's, it's, I guess, you know, it is the end of the line in terms of, you know, you're not giving your dollars to PepsiCo, you're giving your dollars to the Loblaws and Metros and Sobeys of the world. So, so, but yes, it, 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 to answer your question, it seems that, that it's, it's it, that the scope, I'm not sure if we're looking at independence or, 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 or large chains or both, but the scope is, is solely on that grocery portion of the supply chain. Right, which which I guess could also raise some issues or questions about even if the big grocers are handing over their information and providing a kind of a clearer picture of what's happening, if you're not getting that information from the suppliers, then you're probably missing at least a portion of, of what's needed to get that full picture. Yes, and and you know I think I think we'll see what, how how far they're they're doing consultations now for the next few months where they're they're trying to cast a wide net to get to get industry feedback. So I imagine um, they'll have a lineup of of uh, people from throughout the supply chain looking to talk. All right, Jake Edmiston, thank Edmiston, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this. I had fun. Thank you. <laughs> Well, earlier today, our provincial government announced that steps are being taken to make workplaces for healthcare workers safer, both for healthcare workers and patients. They are introducing a new security model, and this is going to be across all health authorities, hiring more protection services employees and expanding funding to something called Switch BC. And this is a new organization that focuses on workplace safety. The government announcing that there will be 300 120 in-house protection service officers, as well as 14 violence prevention leads, all to be hired, again, to help create safer environments for staff and patients. Well, joining us to talk more about what this will look like is Aman Graywall, the president of the BC Nurses Union. Aman, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, what do you think this will do, or how will this tackle as far as making uh, healthcare work settings safer for both patients and for employees, including nurses? Well, uh, you know, we have been asking for this for quite a significant amount of time, and uh, it's welcome news because, you know, at the moment, it's our nurses who and other allied healthcare workers who respond to these violent situations. And so to have our members not be in the line of fire, so to speak, in terms of uh, having to deal with the aggressive, violent patient, uh, if a code white is called, um, and having security officers doing that uh, as their mandate, uh, that is welcome news because our nurses are getting injured. And our things, I know the BCNU has done ad campaigns about this and, and educational campaigns about the issues of violence in the workplace. Uh, have things been getting worse for nurses and for healthcare workers or, or how would you describe the, the kind of the environment right now? Things have definitely been worsening and especially throughout the pandemic, um, the amount of verbal and physical abuse has been increasing and um 
nurses reported a 35% increase in the amount of severity of violence in their workplace between the first and third waves of the pandemic. And is it patients that are that that come in and they're they're in an agitated state, or or what? Can you can you talk about what that looks like as far as violence against nurses? Thank you. Yes, it could be any combination. It could be the patient. It could be a family member. It could be a visitor. You don't know who is coming at you um, with a violent uh, incident. Um, you know, you could have the patient that's upset because uh, a treatment isn't being done or um, they're in a pain crisis and they're lashing out because of that. Or it might be either a psychological or mental health issue, or it may be also that there is substance use involved. So you have those situations, but then you also have visitors and family members who will also uh, perpetrate these uh, acts on our staff, our nurses. And so in that scenario, as as you said, when a code white is called, what is the protocol now as far as when a nurse is in a situation where the nurse feels that safety is, is compromised? So when a code white is called, you normally have a response if you have a code white team at your facility, the code white team, which comprises of uh, different members of the healthcare team uh, responding, you may have security guards that come to the situation as well, but they're not hands-on. So it is the nurse or the other allied health professionals who have to be the hands-on with the nurse giving the, is usually the lead in this and uh, giving the directions to others as to what to do, but security is not hands-on. With the security officers, they will be able to uh, be hands-on if they are able in their role to be able to handcuff and restrain somebody um, that or even have any powers eventually under um, the legal um, aspects of it as to um, what they can do with that, uh, that's still to be seen. Hmm. So so if in a scenario right now when, when a code white is called, so a violent mm-hmm. person is, is threatening or is, or is jeopardizing the safety of a nurse and, and, some, and somebody calls security in that scenario, so the security person comes, but if they're not hands-on, what, what is the role of the security person? Yeah, and that's what we as nurses ask as well, because I've been on a code white team many times, and um, you call security stat, uh, code white is called overhead, and um, people respond if they are available to respond, and um, when you get there, then security, unfortunately, is not able to touch the patient, so they stand by, um, but take direction from the nurse lead. But even a, so, if a nurse was, it just seems so strange that you have a security person, uh, even mm-hmm. the name security, and it sounds mm-hmm. like they're not providing security at all. If they can come and watch, what as the nurse then tries to subdue the patient or or defuse the situation? Yes. 
That that does seem like a, a huge, huge gap. So the difference mm-hmm. then with the, 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 the announcement today and with these new protection, I want to make sure I have the phrase correctly, protection services officers. So will these officers then, uh, nurses in danger, calls a code white, a protection services officer arrives, will that person be able to intervene? Yes. So that is my understanding is that they will be able to intervene, use de-escalation techniques, um, trauma-informed uh, techniques, as well as if they need to go hands-on and to restrain the patient, um, subdue the patient in terms of handcuffing them, etc. Um, that uh, that is what they will be able to do. Oftentimes, um, if you do have a patient. Uh, in a mental health crisis and they need to be medicated, that's where then the nurse would be able to come and provide the medications that have been ordered by the physician to um, be able to provide treatment to that patient, not having to also deal with restraining the patient. Nurse will be able to do the nursing duties, which are to provide the treatment, and security will be the one that will be doing the uh, restraining all right. Well, these workers then, do you think, are they going to take the place of security guards or will they be in addition to? I believe they're going to be in addition to uh, what is already existing because we do have roles for security guards that uh, if they're monitoring the premises or we have uh, patients that are often uh at risk for violence, that could have somebody that is monitoring them. Uh, you may We call them a security sitter. And uh, so you would have a security sitter that uh, stays with the patient and monitors and uh, is following them alongside them. They know that they're being followed, but they're with them. Uh, but they're um, not, you know, out and about uh, without somebody just maintaining the peace. Right. Okay. Does it happen very often then in a scenario? So until this is in place, though, and and under the current model where security is called but can't really do anything, does it happen very often that police are called? Yes, especially in the rural areas where um, they don't have security uh, guards or officers of any sort. And, uh, And they're called so many different things throughout the province that standardizing the language as to what they're called is also very important. But um, you could have someone in rural BC that does not have any security presence and there's a violent incident taking place. You call 911 or whatever they are using, their system, and uh, the police may be in another uh, area of their jurisdiction and it may take them half an hour to get to the facility. So in that time... It is the staff that are having to uh, deal with the situation. And I have heard of a few times where they have barricaded themselves to protect themselves. Hmm. Uh, And so getting back to these numbers, and uh, I think the idea being that they will be in place by the fall of 2023. So still a ways to go as far as training and bringing these new uh, protections officers on. Uh, Do you think it's enough then, the the number that the BC government put out today, 320 in-house protection services officers, as well as 14 violence prevention leads, which I'm not 100% sure what that means. But do you think this is enough to... Fully protect healthcare workers. Um, 
uh, well, it's 26 sites. So, um, no, it's not enough, but it's a start that uh, we get this going as fast as possible. And then we increase it to the entire province uh, moving forward. That is what I would like to see is that this is incorporated throughout the province, that every site has uh, protection service officers. And how are they picking? Do you, do you know how they're going to pick the first 26 healthcare sites that will get this? So um, we as BCNU and the other uh, unions were also consulted as to um, which are the high-risk uh, sites that we're hearing about from where injuries are taking place and increased violence is taking place. And so uh, we were able to provide um, sites that we have heard uh, from our members that have increased uh, violence. And so we submitted our lists, and I'm sure that the others submitted lists that are similar to ours. And um, then it was originally 22 sites, and the government came back and added four more sites to that. So we have 26 sites now. All right. Do you know which sites in Metro Vancouver then would be on the list? I believe um, in uh, so Burnaby, RCH, Sir Memorial, Peace Arch, Langley, um, VGH, St. Paul's, uh, Mount St. Joseph, Lionsgate, Richmond. Those are just some of the ones that I have heard of. All right. Well, Amon, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on the announcement. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.